but I am proud of what I am. And what is that? I am a librarian. I am going to kiss you, Mr. O'Connell. Call me Rick. I am Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. And we are now, a, well, I guess for us, we're a week before Valentine's Day. We are now a couple of days before Valentine's Day as you listen to this. So happy Valentine's Day. And I am here once again with Wayne Wise. Hey, Wayne. Hey, Mav. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. Yeah. You know, what'd you get me? <laughs> uh, it's a surprise. You got two more days. So uh, I anticipation. Don't know. You, you, yeah. Better be good or I'm not putting out. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I am also once again with palindrome Hannah Rogers. Hello, Hannah. Hannah. Hey, um, I did not get <laughs> anyone anything for Valentine's Day. I just want to make like clear. Uh, so, like, so, you know, if you want a Valentine's Day movie recommendation, everyone should go see Serenity, the greatest film of all time. <laughs> I actually, I've been busy this week. I actually was going to go see it just to put that, you know, after Rotten Tomato score, 11 cents in your pocket. But um, but I, I was busy all week. Uh, I don't no, know if you guys have to go see it. It's the best film I've ever seen. 13 out of 10. It's about a tuna fish named Justice. How can you compete with that? Uh, so Hannah's been watching our box office draft results, clearly. <laughs> and I mean, to be fair, you you are in second place. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I will be doing better after this weekend because the Lego Movie 2 yeah, came out. Yeah. You have Lego Movie and I, I, I fully expect you to be jumping into the lead uh, mm, very soon now. Yeah, but we will see. There's I, Wayne's had a couple a couple weeks head start with glass, and I've got I've got a movie coming up. I've got a battle Angelita that could happen. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but Valentine's Day. So for Valentine's Day, we thought we would do. I guess this is the Monster Love Show. What, what did you call it? This is your yeah Monster Love. This is your your topic, Hannah. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about the Mummy. Uh, it's the greatest love story of all time. Uh, so to recap um, from our two previous monster shows, we ended Breaking Twilight uh, talking about monster love stories. And I jokingly said, well, actually, I let, let me just own it. I was serious. The mummy is the greatest love story of all time. And everybody said, what are you talking about? And I said, it's the whole thing is a love story. Yeah. Um, and then our returning guest, Michael, um, Said that all monster stories are love oh, stories. Are Did not you know, to you know introduce the guests early. Um, yeah. So oh, uh, go ahead and introduce them. We've got yeah. yeah, you've got we've got two guests. Go ahead and introduce them since you're the. This is your show this week, so go ahead. Oh, it is. Oh, doesn't use me. Uh, Congratulations! So, uh, have, That's what we got you for Valentine's Day. 
Yay. Thanks. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, so we once again have returning guests, uh, Michael and Heather. Thanks for coming back, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. very happy to be back. <laughs> yeah, you guys are great. Oh, did I lose you? So we're oh, going to talk no. monsters again, but this time specifically focusing on on the love stories of monsters. Yes. And we, I think that the first thing we should do to make this a productive conversation is lay down some parameters about what we mean by monster love stories. Because okay. if you read the blog, voxpopcast.com, uh, uh, leave us your comments. Uh, oh, look, I got to plug in early. I'm good at this. Uh, you can see that we originally thought, okay, well, what one makes a monster? Two, what is love? And three, are we talking about two humans who are in a monster story, like Prime Person Zombies? Are we talking about two monsters in love? Are we talking about a monster and a human in love? Uh, what combinations do we want to include? Um, because mm-hmm. to take the mummy, for example, there are two love stories of that. There's Imhotep and Anaxonomon and their relationship and being torn apart in a Romeo and Juliet scenario is what kicks off the mummy. Um, and then there's, you know, the Brendan Fla- Fraser, Rachel Weiss, like cute flirtatious love story where she's a librarian and librarians deserve more love. That that is where we are. I think that in general, like the thing that like doesn't seem to fascinate people as much is the, you know, two humans in love, like, uh, on Buffy, when they introduced Riley, everyone was like, why is he here? (laughs) (laughs) He's also boring. He's real boring. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I did not like Riley. Well, not only is he boring, but we do spoiler alert, find out that he does. He is a monster. Uh, They're experimenting on him. I feel like they made him "quote unquote" a monster to make him less boring. It did not sadly work. He was no. boring. Yeah, it really didn't. <laughs> well, so, well, I guess I don't know. All right, so I guess we can always start with Buffy. So Buffy, yeah. clearly a monster love story because Angel is a monster as a spike. I mean. So is Buffy. We've talked about it. Well, yes. yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. To go back to the first show um, of the monster yeah. match. Yeah. 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 I, I certainly make the argument um, that Buffy is a monster. I, I mean, just by her mm-hmm. otherness, it, it doesn't even have to do with the supernatural identity, although that adds to it. But in a lot of monster mm-hmm. narratives, the woman by virtue of not being the male is monstrous. Women, Agreed. they're scary. You got to watch out for them. Agreed. And in this case, since she's the, since she's the, um, you know, unquestioned superhero and protagonist that that makes her even more monstrous. Yep. Okay. But you've got a lot, a lot of love stories on Buffy um, that, that, cause I know the the concern was to stay a little bit away from vampires uh, this episode to talk about different kinds of monsters, but I always appreciated the Willow Oz uh, relationship mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> partly because I'm a huge fan of both of those actors. So um, I was, I enjoyed that. And then, I mean, come on, how do you not love Anya and Xander and really yeah. who's the more monstrous one in that relationship? In the end, it's the non-monster because he he's cheating on her. And it's like, dude, I mean, she's like a demon and you're the bad guy in this relationship at this moment. <laughs> I mean, yeah, men, men are, as, as I have learned from 19th century literature, um, men are monsters. Uh, I, I mean, like what makes a monster like their behavior or because there's some sort of other creature because 
you know, Rochester's a dick. This is a good place to bring up the the comment from our, our blog. Okay, so Stephanie, who and my wife, who's been on the show, she actually left a comment and she says, one thing I'd be interested in hearing from this discussion is the sex of the humans versus monsters. It's my perception that it's mostly female humans pairing up with ugly, comma, I guess male monsters. <laughs> Can you say if this is true? And if so, possible reasons for this. Thanks. And I think that goes into what Hannah was just saying. Yeah, I actually would. There's two things I would like to say in response to that. First is to express my shock that a, a human woman would marry uh, Chris Maverick. Um, yeah, well. <laughs> uh, oh my God. Uh, that's really exciting to me. And I think that that's like, <clears throat> I think I need to investigate. I just didn't see that coming. Now, the second thing though, is that, that um, all due respect, Stephanie, I, I, I actually think that the fact that um, that is the impression uh, has to do with some of these um, chauvinist biases that dominate the criticism of literature. Because if you actually go back to the 19th century um, and look at some of the monsters that emerged there, I mean, one of one that stands out to me, I know we're trying to get away from vampires, but is uh, Carmilla, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. By uh, Sheridan Lefanu, who was a, not only a female monster, but also a lesbian. Um, and the most fun, interesting character in that novel series. And, uh, that novel series had a huge impact on the development of uh, the vampire as a sex object in the future. Well, I would right? go back even further. I mean, I, um, it depends on whether how we want to classify love stories as in are we literally talking about them ending up together? But if we go back to myth- mythology and Arthurian, you know, actual legendary stories, the female monster is, you know, you, you have you have um, sirens, you have succubi, you have mm-hmm. Morgan Le Fay, you've got Medusa, the female monster. Who, well, yeah, Medusa Cersei. doesn't really seduce anybody, <laughs> Cersei. Yeah. But, but the female yeah. monster that seduces the man is you know, a common mythological trope. Uh, I mean, and, and certainly if we get to the Hollywood stuff today, I, I do see your point. You know, Shape of Water, we've got... Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, Beauty, Beauty and the Beast. The most recent version of The Mummy. There's a sexy yeah. female monster for Tom Cruise. I think it goes both ways. I think Heather can speak to um, some of these notions about looking at the way that heroes behave classically. The hero uh, usually has to travel across his good lands and her bad lands to rescue her from the ogre, right? Mm-hmm. Who is some sort of sexually dominating figure or the dragon or whatever it is, right? And he rescues her and brings her back to his good lands. And that's the, that's the trope. But we see yeah, that in distress so, story. Yeah, the damsel in distress, um, uh, and then and so the the monster in that case is implied male, right? And it is in place of her father or her bad husband or something like that, and he's going to be a better male figure in her life. But we see that subverted, as you guys pointed out, all the way back to the classical age. And the truth is, is that anything that people, I mean, in, in my research, uh, it, my research suggests that anything that people are afraid of can wind up manifested culturally as a monster uh, that needs to be defeated in order to alleviate that anxiety. And sex right. is something that causes us a tremendous amount of anxiety every in every right. direction. But there, there, I mean, like it might not be a majority of, um, you know, male versus female monsters, but there's certainly are a lot of narratives that you can think of offhand where, uh, you know, King Kong, uh, sure. the mm-hmm. swamp thing, shape of water, um, creature from the black lagoon, creature from the black lagoon, beauty and the beast. Oh yes. And, and so it, I think there's like maybe like something in these narratives we 
can look at because there seems to be similarities across them. Like you know, everyone who saw Shape of War but doesn't know anything about monsters besides the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast was like, oh, it's just a retelling of Beauty and the Beast. Oh yeah, it's mm-hmm. totally not because. Um, so okay, so so uh, Hannah, I'm so glad you brought up King Kong because that triggered a whole uh, set of thoughts uh, where we can get into some issues about race as well, right? Mm-hmm. So so the the notion with King Kong. Creature from the Black Lagoon and a movie that nobody pays any attention to anymore called White Zombie uh, mm-hmm. that Bella Lugosi starred in as a Haitian right. voodoo priest. Yeah, there's there are all these <laughs> stories about um, foreign monsters, right, um, who are coming to America to steal white women because they're they're so attracted to white women. Right. And King right. Kong follows Ray all the way from the jungles of Africa into downtown New York, where he goes on a rampage. Right. Um, and this is a this is a only slightly misplaced fear of black people uh, who have, you know, forcibly taken from Africa and put into our inner cities. And now they're going to go crazy and kill us all. Uh, the only thing that could possibly stop them is their love of white women. Right. And so there's this, Mm -hmm. this, this uh, manifestation of that threat is definitely there. Part of that, 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 that in airplanes, airplanes might stop them. (laughs) I I also think that, that one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in when I've been thinking about for the last week is the way that um, the fear physically manifests in a lot of male monsters. So we can physically tell that they're monstrous because we can look at them and see, um, so you can tell King Kong is the monster because he's, you know, not the typical human of the day, although he has humanistic characteristics, obviously. But with women, it's it's very different. So your female monsters, it's not the physical representation of the monstrosity. It's their more attitude. So it's it's whether they're nice or mean, um, whether uh-huh. they're mm-hmm. evil, merry, they're sexy or innocent. And one of the texts that right. I keep keep coming back to also one that that is often ignored um is uh freaks and how you've got the beautiful woman who seduces the little person to just be a complete jerk yes i'm talking about the todd browning film from the 1930s and Mm -hmm. and in that it's very clear that that these um sideshow people um, are the ones that are supposed to be monstrous and they're um, very kind and uh, accepting and it's the beautiful woman and the handsome strong man who are horrible um, who are the monsters right Right. in fact uh, the um, in my first uh, I did a lot of research on freak shows in in the United States and that that, uh, film came into my um, field of inquiry and one of the most interesting things about that film is that in the climactic scene, the freaks, uh, the sideshow performers are all, um, creeping through a storm mm-hmm. to, to, uh, ambush and possibly murder this beautiful woman. And you, the audience member are going, yeah, get her, get her. <laughs> you know, they're like, I hope, Oh, look at them horribly crawling through the mud and slithering and lurching toward her. And you're like, yeah, get her, get her. <laughs> it's a really interesting, I think, audience phenomenon in that film. And, um, that, that is where your, your, a lot of viewers, I will say, I'm not going to generalize everybody, but that, that is where their loyalty by the end of the film is. It's, it's to the, the folks that are about to commit murder, maybe, um, 
and it's very, I don't know. I found it fascinating when I finally, I read about it and then finally got to see it. And I thought, you know, it, it is a sort of questioning of what is monstrosity and, and again, I come back to this idea of I think with the the perception that it's male monsters maybe in beautiful females is because we we literally make the male monsters look monstrous in a way that we tend not to with female um, mm-hmm. monsters. For male gaze issues, I, particularly in the, particularly I suppose in the in the visual age. I, I don't know mm-hmm. is this as much a with physical with literal text written printed text is this as much a issue as it is with film and television i I definitely think that um yeah the visual media definitely allowed for more um easily identifiable monsters by just sight Mm -hmm. oh yeah but i'm wondering certainly once we are looking at our stories once we are once we have film i certainly understand why the male gaze comes more into play why Mm -hmm. in a patriarchal world we're going to want to make all of our starlets and you know whether we're talking about a fay ray or a sarah michelle geller or anywhere in between we're going to want to make them desirable visually desirable to the you know to the presumed male audience so i understand that but i'm wondering in a book where you're reading where you're literally reading is it as much a like is there more of a chance of seeing a a monster depicted as a a monstrous female character depicted as a monster as opposed to you know in the same way that we might do with you know a king kong or a or a mummy or is it the case that we just we just never we never wanted to even in text consider women to be ever possibly anything other than beautiful grendel's mother yeah, yeah, Grendel's mother, absolutely. But in, yeah. in but in the film version, Grendel's mother's a hot Angelina Jolie. She's certainly not right. in Beowulf, but no, she no. The original Grendel's mother is not a hot Angelina Jolie. She's uh, right. She's quite monstrous. Yeah, but um, look, um, uh, one of the things that I um, am at pains to point out in my research is that between the beginning of what we might think of as the Gothic horror era. Uh, where where um, the great novels were being written, right? Uh, Frankenstein, Castle of Otranto, uh, those kinds of things. And the advent of film, there was over 100 years of theatrical production, right? Mm-hmm. And those stories were adapted um, to the stage very quickly and proliferated extremely rapidly with no copyright laws or anything to protect them. And so, <laughs> um, so the... One of the things about the stage of the time, very popular uh, form, right? The popular media form of the time was theater. And um, of course, there was a a very strict prohibition in Europe um, and England against the depiction of sex acts, right? Right, On stage. So how do you get to be titillating? Right. Right. And I think that these. Yeah. You said on the previous episode that we have the the violence as a substitute for sex so that you can have, you know, essentially penetration through vampire bites. Exactly. And so, you know, if you look at the first, uh, if you look at the original novel, Frankenstein, um, it is a love story, but the love story, the real love story is the failed unrequited one between Frankenstein and his creature, right? There is a strong undercurrent of, um, uh, a strong motif, a strong theme that goes underneath it where he says, you know, I, I should have been thy Adam, but rather I'm thy fallen angel. Um, 
misery made me a fiend, make me happy, and I will again be virtuous. And he's he's mm-hmm. talking specifically to Frankenstein's responsibility as his father, as his creator, which he has failed to do. And he um, he has failed to love his his creation. Instead, he's abhorred by it and he abandoned it. Right. And that's what made him evil. Um, so, uh, and what he asks for, right. What he asked Frankenstein for is a bride, uh, so that he can, um, go to the jungles of Brazil and be happy, right. With his, with his, um, his bride, uh, which Frankenstein agrees to do. And then, and then reneges once again. Um, but, uh, in the very first, adaptation of Frankenstein to the stage in 1823. Um, these minor love stories, uh, that are suggested in the, in the novel, like between, um, if you remember, uh, the creature, uh, gets involved with this family living in the woods and, mm-hmm. um, tries to be their guardian spirit and help them out. And there's a little love story there that gets magnified into a major subplot, um, within, uh, within that, story within the the film version and Frankenstein gets a girlfriend uh, named Agatha who um, is just created out of whole cloth. You know, she's not from anywhere uh, so that Frankenstein can have a love interest as well. And, um, and then that becomes, you know, that becomes part of the trope of that story because the future, future adaptations of the theater um, and then eventually the film, which is an adaptation of the theater, not of the novel, mm-hmm. uh, rely on those earlier tropes, which were successful, right? Which were popular. And so you, you have these, this love story being completely imbricated into, uh, into the monster story. And I think that that sets the tone for the next 200 years of monster culture. There's gotta be a love story in there somewhere. But like go, I mean, to answer your question from a textual perspective, Mav, um, like I'm thinking about Gothic novels, like the monk and, you know, there's a character in that named Matilda uh, who seduces the monk and is like also simultaneously a demon and like some other things. And she's like the best slash like most inconsistent character. And it's amazing. Uh, but she's really beautiful. The like female mm-hmm. vampires of Dracula are really beautiful, even when Dracula himself is described as gross looking in the original and then powers of darkness, which is the Icelandic adaptation slash translation, um, that came out a few years after the original Dracula, like, uh, you know, Elizabeth, um, who is not a monster, um, is like described as really beautiful and pure in Frankenstein. She's Frankenstein's love interest in the novel. And part of the reason Frankenstein freaks out and destroys, uh, the creature's bride in the novel is because he imagines, her being gross and, uh, Frankenstein, um, Frankenstein's creature and the bride, um, like reproducing and like taking over the world with their like horrific offspring. So like, I think there is something there that like in general, women are pretty, even if they're bad, Mm -hmm. because, you know, even, even like, uh, in Arthurian legend retellings, like with, uh, Tennyson, they're sneaky ladies, but they're pretty and they seduce you and there's an anxiety there. Mm -hmm. And I think to go with Hannah, the anxiety over sex and sexual lore. And I mean, I know it's not um, necessarily the horror genre, but my husband and I last night were talking about the femme fatale of the film noir. Always beautiful. Always, Mm -hmm. you know, definitely monstrous because always getting the, the, the Mm -hmm. the protagonist to do something really bad. Right. And, And it is, I think it's that, that idea of, 
sexuality being scary and dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're a beautiful woman, oh my gosh, as a man, what am I going to do? That seems to be the premise. I think it's, it's certainly problematic because it assumes that all men are going to fall in love with a beautiful woman, no matter what their situation, but, but that's sort of, that's what's happening or presumed in the, the visual narrative. Yeah, I think it's problematic on every level, because even in the hard-boiled detective tradition that sort of predates uh, film, film noir and sort of, you know, begins it, those texts are all written from a point of view of, and I didn't think I was going to have anything to say on this episode, but um, film noir, I know this stuff. Um, so those texts are always always written, the hard-boiled text um, moving from that tradition, actually earlier than that, but even up to the modern, you know, sort of early 90s comic book era. The idea of of a sexy woman is that she is suddenly powerful in a way that women are not supposed to be because for exactly what Heather just said if you've got a world where women are there to be property of men which is you know the grand scheme of history pretty much the world that we've lived in um and you suddenly have a world where you know even going back to Arthurian legend where Morgan Le Fay can seduce you because she's so hot that now she has the power. That's monstrous in its own way, in a way that I don't think she needs to be hideous and giant the way that King Kong is, because, mm-hmm. you know, just the idea of the idea of women in control was sort of scary. Well, the the fear of women having fear of women having their own agency. Right. Yeah, but just right. frightened of that, you know. And this is this is actually a really good place to bring up um, the number one uh, trope of the female monster, which is the witch. Mm-hmm. Right. We haven't mm-hmm. been talking mm-hmm. about that much, but since well, actually since ancient times um, in many cultures, in fact, I'm trying to think of a culture where this isn't a trope, but the notion of women gaining knowledge that is not available to men um, and that uh, gives them an undue amount of influence over their um, social environment uh, is one that is very uh, prominent. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, in the middle ages in particular, actually it's the early Renaissance. I shouldn't, blame them, the medievals for this. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't burn witches. No, the Pope was like, there is no such thing as witches. Stop burning people. Um, for, no, for a thousand years, the Pope was like, there's no such thing as witches. Every Pope they were like, stop burning people. And then all of a sudden in the Renaissance, early Renaissance, they're like, oh yeah, witches are real. And they're in your bedroom and they're trying to kill you. And if you look at the Malleus Maleficarium and <laughs> burn away, yeah, burn away, keep burning them. And this is, these are, this all has to do with politics and the rise of the, the, uh, Protestant, um, uh, 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 counter narrative and, you know, it's, it's, it's very complex, but, um, but the notion that witches were primarily women, uh, does not gain much credence until this period because you could be a witch of a, of either sex, uh, mm-hmm. in Europe prior to this, but the Malleus Maleficarium, which is, uh, the hammer of witches, it's a witch hunter's guide written in the late 1400s, I think by, um, uh, a couple of really, really nasty pieces of work um, goes to great lengths to sexualize 
and eroticize the process of witchcraft so that there is always now a sexual component that has to do with the devil. Uh, there are these long passages of um, women who congregate in the woods naked and they have sexual congress with each other and then the devil shows up and they have sexual congress with him and they do things that like, you know, there's woodcuts of, of witches kissing the devil's anus and performing rim jobs on him in order to get magical powers. And, um, and then of course there's the grease. So they make these magical greases and they rub them all over each other in these long, and you just got to wonder like, dude, like they, these monks had nothing to do, but stay up all night long and fantasize about women rubbing grease all over each other in order to be, you know, it's, it's, um, and so this is this moment, I think when, uh, one moment when the, the, the conflation of sexual prowess and evil magic comes into play and that, that sex itself is something that is very, very dangerous and can lure us into, into darkness. And I think the femme fatale is a, an evolution of that. So my, I guess my kind of question is, uh, if we've established like the kind of tropes of like what female monsters look like and some of the anxieties that surround them and what male monsters look like and some of the anxieties that surround them, uh, like sexuality is a huge part of what we've talked about the past two episodes and this and, and sex in general and, uh, you know, seduction, but are all of these something we can categorize as love stories um, or is there something very specific about love? I really like the question that Hannah just asked because because I think that so often we talk about monsters in love. We do talk about sex and sexuality and the sexualization of love. And I think that we forget um, that love is pretty powerful or can be a pretty powerful emotion. And so, you know, what do we do with um, the monstrous relationships that might not include sex or, or the, the, again, as part of our definition of monsters in love. And, and I sort of come back to, um, the, the not visual monsters, but the people who are just, you know, in, in love and that, that causes some bad decision-making or they don't treat each other very well. And, and yeah, I, I was really glad that Hannah proposed uh, that line of questioning because I'm curious to know what everyone thinks, because I, I think we often, again, we default to the, what do people look like as monsters and mm -hmm. their relationships? But, but what about yeah. the, the yeah. maybe less I, I think, scary looking people having monstrous relationships? Well, I, as, as a side note, I think, you know, if we take the idea of you know, monsterizing the things that we were afraid of, intense emotions are one of the things that we're afraid of. Which is why it's easier to just do a movie where, oh, well, they must be in love because they're doing it. You know, so. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, often I think it's interesting that um, often the monster interferes in a loving relationship or even just a sexual relationship between two normal people in a movie or in a, in a, mm -hmm. in a monster story that happens a lot. Um, mm -hmm. in fact, um, you could think of, uh, I mean, like I, I was just thinking about like Friday the 13th or something like that, where the illicit sexuality of the teenagers actually in some way summons the monster, um, mm -hmm. to destroy them. Right. Uh, certainly you Halloween. Also think of that. Yeah, Halloween. That's what I was thinking of, right? Or mm -hmm. what's the one there? Uh, all Friday the Thirteenth as well. Yeah, a lot of them. Yeah, but it's yeah, I was just gonna right. say, yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. yeah, and so you know, you get the sense that the that the you know the monster has come to punish the the, the children for their deviant sexuality, but mm -hmm. uh, which is having one, right? Any sexuality is deviant, <laughs> um, and um, 
the vampire is often, in fact, I think most of the time, um, some displaced homophobia or homophilia, um, that people can't quite get around or can't quite deal with. But, um, you can also think of a story like, um, like the Wolfman, uh, where you have Lawrence Talbot trying to have a relationship with someone and, and his werewolf interferes with that. His own werewolf interferes with that. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but if we're talking about, I'm glad Heather made that distinction because if we're talking about stories in which the, the monster and some human or something actually wind up having a healthy, uh, long-term supportive, you know, emotionally stable, uh, relationship, like in shape of water, shape of water. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, of course, Del Toro, like Joss Whedon is, is an expert at subverting our, these tropes and changing our expectations, right? One of the things that we learn at the end of Shape of Water is that the, the fish creature is not the monster, right? And it's Michael Shannon's character who was the monster the whole time. Ooh. Um, <laughs> and that, I mean, but isn't that the, just Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, but in an R-rated film? Yes. Gaston, a monster. Yeah, so, yes. Gaston's a good Gaston's an idiot, but you know, really, hey, there's a there's a giant there's a giant beast thing who just kidnapped an old man and and the girl I like, and you know, frankly, his behavior is kind of reasonable. No, 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 it is not reasonable because he's sexually harassing. No, I'm not talking about that. He sexually harasses Bella. He blackmails her oh, over yes. her father. Oh, he is horrible. I'm not. No, yeah, Gaston's an absolute asshole and horrible. But I'm just talking about the part where he's the part where he's like, "Let's go kill the beast." Well, yeah, yeah, you you gotta do that. (laughs) No, I mean, I agree. You know, he's he's um, he's he's not a monster, right? He's a human, and he's doing what he thinks humans ought to do, which is defend humanity against monsters, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I liked about the Peter Jackson remake of King Kong is that it was pretty clear that um, Naomi Watts' character starts to realize that she has a choice uh, about which boyfriend (laughs) she wants to have, either Adrian Brody, who is, you know, human. uh, He's got that going for him. But apart from that, he doesn't have much going for him. And then this other guy who, you know, is a monster, but he's very virile. And uh, he did beat up two Tyrannosaurus Rexes to protect her, right? Which is something that she can't really expect from Adrian Brody. And that, you know, that sometimes might, you don't want to take the elevator. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kong has a lot to bring into a relationship, right? And then they go ice skating together, right? Which is, which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm not sure where I was going with that. Heather, save me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was, again, I really liked, um, I, I really had had time to think about this this topic. And the one, and, and uh, Hannah, I hope that I'm staying true to sort of the spirit, the spirit, if not the actual, what you, what your question was that you posed, because I, I love the question. But I keep coming back to Severus Snape. Um, this idea, and spoiler alert for people who don't know Harry Potter, um, the idea of him just, just really making bad choices and being led in bad ways, but ultimately Harry, without the atonement for the love that Severus had for Harry's mother, 
you know, that strong emotion that he had for her. He, he hates Harry's father. He hates Harry. But it's the love that Severus had for Lily that keeps Harry alive. And we all attribute that to Dumbledore. But you find out in the end that it's Severus that's consistently the one who's kind of there behind the scenes, making sure that Harry progresses from one book to another. And it's that idea of, what. well, how do we categorize him? Is he a monster? Well, he's not a super nice human being. He really hates Harry and Harry's dad. But how much... How much is that love he has for Lily redemptive? How much of that is, is, I don't know. How much do we overlook sort of all these actions and, and sort of the hateful way he is to everybody who's not Lily and Dumbledore? Because well, he had this really true, dick. strong love. <laughs> James Potter well, yeah, was a no. serious dick to him the entire, like, <laughs> well, and there's like, that, you know, <laughs> although, although, yes, uh, James Potter is not super awesome and serious certainly isn't. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm going to say I, I like Severus. Uh, I'll go on record yeah. even before Alan Rickman played him in the movies, which just <laughs> I, made me love him even more. I, I have to, I have to disagree because even I admit that like he clearly had bad blood with the Marauders and they were horrible teenage boys who maybe or may not grew up, but there's no reason to abuse 11 year olds and make them cry and bully oh, yeah, yeah. Hermione Granger. Uh, <laughs> sure. Rich, I just like I. Yes, I I think that the like love is an interesting question when we're talking about bad behavior and monsters like Severus because like how far does love get you when you're still and, and a bad person? It doesn't a jerk. Ex- doesn't excuse bad behavior. Yeah, doesn't excuse bad you know, behavior. I, I, yeah, I, I think I I'm so glad Heather brought up Snape because he's uh, I think he ties into some of the other. Uh, things that we're talking about today. Um, there was a, there was a, um, I don't know if you call it a podcast. It was like a riff tracks called uh, wizard people, dear reader, something like that. Do you guys remember that? Where uh, nope, somebody, a comedian, a comedian had uh, narrates the entire Harry Potter series. It's hilarious. Okay. It's called wizard, wizard people, dear reader. You, sh- you all should look at it. Um, uh, I'll give you a link if I can find one and you can put it yeah. up on the, on the thing. Link but, uh, the all listeners, if, if we found it, that's <laughs> right. Wizard people, dear reader. And, and one of the, one of the things that, um, this narrator gets wrong when he's narrating Harry Potter is he thinks Snape is a woman. <laughs> and I think he's making fun of his outfit and his haircut. Right. Uh, but that got me thinking just now that there is a lot about Snape that, that, that echoes back to the classical witch character. Right. And I'm talking about like the, the gingerbread house, witch, right. Um, the way he dresses, the way he moves, some the way he talks, he's a potions master, right. He's an mm-hmm. herbalist. Um, there's something feminine about Snape. And I wonder if that is also part of his, um, you know, because as opposed to the jock, super masculine, James Potter, Right. Or the or the out of control sexuality of the werewolf Sirius Black, right? And there's a trope there about bullying, you know, that that is really important to geek culture that I've been studying a lot lately. Is that geeks are are bullied and then they get their own somehow. And of course, Harry was super bullied, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And so there's a there's actually a connection there. I think when Severus sort of comes out to Harry as someone who was bullied, right? And they have that momentary doesn't last long because Harry is also a jerk, but you know, this connection, (laughs) right. Um, 
I wonder this, if I wonder if Snape is feminized. That's what I'm. That's what I'm asking. This doesn't take away from your point. I just want to note that Sirius Black is an animagus and not a werewolf, and that's Remus Lupin. And I'm sorry, I'm really obsessed with Harry Potter. <laughs> I, I, I can see uh, the. Thank you for saying this from the comments. <laughs> I concede the point, Hannah. I absolutely do. And I know I knew that. I actually knew that. But I thought that the way that the book and then the movie presents them together, where we uh, viewers or readers can't really tell the difference for a while. Um, I think that's that's a very clever move on J.K. Rowling's part. I, well, you know, maybe we need to do an episode on Harry Potter and talk about the relationship between Remus Lupin and Sirius Black. But that's what? Or maybe that's that sort of fits in with the topic today. If they have a relationship, maybe. Or you well, know, uh, I mean, also, hey, Remus, are you Remus, shipping Sirius Black and Remus Lupin, or is that uh, a thing? It's, it's <laughs> look, it's in the text until book six, where Nikki Rowling does this thing, right, where she has like these homoerotic relationships. Um, How and, are you not on the show last week? How are you not this on the is, show? This last week? was the entire episode. <laughs> this was last week's oh, episode. I should have. No, no. I should have listened to it. I'm sorry. I didn't do my no, homework. No, we, no, we we didn't talk um, about this one. But but please continue because we, we I, had a whole. We, there, look, yeah. I, I want. I, look, I want to do a Harry Potter episode uh, about the politics of Harry Potter. One of the things I want to talk about is sexuality in Harry Potter, and not like made up maybe things that happen. But she has these homoerotic relationships between men. You like Remus Lupin and. Uh, Sirius Black or Scorpius and Albus in Cursed Child. And then always she cuts off the possibility by inserting someone like Tonks or Rose almost out of nowhere. Um, so like, or even Hermione. though, yeah, sure. But like, <laughs> like, but also like more specifically, um, like the, those relationships, like, and, and there was a large portion of like the online community, um, particularly um, members of the LG TQ community who really like thought they were being represented by um, the relationship between Remus and um, Sirius and then had kind of felt like it was kind of a bait and switch. But that is not what we're talking about specifically today. So we can move on. Well, I think, well, I mean, actually, I think it does play together though. Yeah, because I think we, we, um, I'm thinking that about something Heather said earlier and, and we also should distinguish in monster, uh, lore and monster culture is what really I'm trying to say that, um, we don't have to just be looking at heterosexual relationships, right? I mean, we're, yeah. uh, monster culture is a way for people to explore forbidden things and mm -hmm. homosexuality is one of those things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of times the monster is your analog for the homosexual relationship. It's, you know, it's deviant in some way. I, the idea of King Kong, the idea, I mean, the witch narratives in real life and in fiction are probably just cover ups for lesbian activity that somebody didn't like. You know, the actual, you know, witch trials, that is. It's all fiction, Chris. It's all fiction. No, yeah. The Malleus Maleficarium is fiction. Well, I just want to point that out. I, <laughs> like, um, I don't think that if anybody out there is actually looking to become a witch hunter, um, you're a psychopath. So uh, it's, it's all fiction. <laughs> So do we have non-heteronormative monster relationships where the homosexuality is explicit and not just represented by the monstrosity? Yes. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah. I would also like to um, add another question that, that we don't necessarily have to answer at the same time, but we should think about, are there any relationships that are not heterosexual that aren't thwarted by the end. Oh, good call. Because sometimes in monster love stories like Shape of Water or Beauty and the Beast, they end up together and it's like a happy, like little, you know, nuclear family 
esque thing. Uh, but they're more often than not, a lot of these monster relationships are thwarted in some form or another, like King Kong. Right. Of course, in, in both those two cases, in the in Beauty and the Beast, they can only end up together once he has been normalized away from his monstrosity. And in Shape of Water, effectively, she's been normalized into monstrosity by becoming a fish person herself. So, right. so which is also do you ever have a relationship <laughs> where it's not just yeah, yeah. Swamp, swamp Thing and Abby in in Alan Moore Swamp Thing, yeah. That they, I mean, she, she remains human. He remains a, a swamp creature, and and they have this a is, very healthy relationship. Yeah, this is something that a well-adjusted where they where, where they rape people. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, they have a healthy relationship yeah. unless you're John Constantine. Yeah. Sure, I, I, but I, th- I think he was a willing participant. <laughs> <laughs> it's John Constantine. It's John Constantine. He's up for anything. But yeah, no, I, I get your point. But yeah, I, I think that um, obviously Willow and Tara does not end well right. um, with with, not with Tara. All. But I think that when you talk about um, their relationship, I I think that that the length of Willow and Tara's relationship is is maybe trying to get at that where where the month, the fact that uh, Willow their witches is it's just part of who they are as well as their relationship. Um, and so for a while, their relationship seems to be on a fairly even keel. And at the end of the series, I believe Willow is in a new relationship that I, I want to say. Kennedy. 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 Yeah. Thank you. I couldn't remember Kennedy's name. Kennedy is still alive at the end. So, so presumably the there's end. a relationship that might not be thwarted, at least in the television show. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily work out in the comic, but that's, but it runs its natural course. Which is mm-hmm. fine, you know. Uh, the, the the comic Buffy, which I read for reasons that I, I just couldn't let go. Um, it started out strong, got got weaker, yeah. But it it's an interesting. It was an interesting play because they continued to explore. They had a, essentially unlimited time to just continue to explore those kinds of relationships and things like that. So you mm-hmm. did have, you did have. They didn't seem trapped into the fact that well Willow can't break up because well that would ruin this so instead they will just um we'll just kill Tara I, which I don't think is the only reason right. they did it I think there I think there were a lot of good storyline reasons and bad ones to kill Tara off but she does develop as a character in the mm-hmm. in the comic series as well and then there's some other you know you, you have a lot of changed relationships as time goes on it, it gets really repetitive you also end up with Dawn and end up with Xander and I don't know how that how I feel about that it was yeah. weird <laughs> I will freely admit I did not read uh, the comics. Um, but no, no one did. I, it's literally just me. I did up until like season 10 or so. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it goes to like 11 or 12. It, it goes, it, they canceled it. So it started right after Buffy went off the air. They canceled it three months ago. Yeah. Oh, and, wow. and, well, and Boom Studio <laughs> just got the right neighbor just brought it back. So it, it's still a yeah. thing. So. Well, it's a different continuity for the new yeah. one. I was going to say, I want to, I want to signpost this uh, because what I think what we're getting back to is this, um, this trope. I, I think of it as the children's hour trope, where if you are going to portray a homosexual relationship in a positive light, then, then at the end they have to die. Right. Uh, and that is uh, a dominant motif for that kind of storytelling prior to uh, Stonewall. And even afterwards, it still really dominates this, you know, that if you are going, even, I mean, even if you are a, a queer author yourself, um, you are writing these stories in which you have a positive uh, 
homosexual relationship, which ends in tragedy. And it has to, right? Because of the mm-hmm. same reason. Yeah. Just, I, I'm going to hype something up. A former coworker of mine, uh, Zora Gilbert, uh, is editor on a series called Dates, which is young adult queer fiction. It's, it's a comic book, uh, graphic novel series. Uh, they've done successful Kickstarters for three of them. Two of them are out. And the basic rule that, that they give to all of their contributors is tell any kind of queer fiction story you want. No one's allowed to die. To challenge that, that trope. Yeah, because they're, yeah, they're specifically subverting yeah. that trope, right? Um, yeah. But then this, this gets me. We should link to that in the show notes. It's a really wonderful series. Uh, this brings me back to my, uh, to a, a thought that I have about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? Um, when at the beginning of the story, and this I think falls directly into what Hannah's researching, right? Um, at the beginning of the story, he says that he wants to erase, he wants to use chemicals, right? To erase a part of himself that he doesn't like. He never really tells us what that is, right? What is it exactly? And, and um, uh, in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic, I thought they did a yes, wonderful yes. job of bringing this out, right? It wasn't like he was he was trying to erase the part of himself that forgot to return library books, right? And I went and looked it up, and and it it said he said there's a certain gaiety of disposition is what he says. And he says something like, I have these urges that, that I can't find any place for in, in the society in which I live. And the real telling thing is that when he transforms into the other, the alter ego that he was trying to suppress, he takes on the name Hyde, H-Y-D-E, which uh, is a reference, I think, can only be a reference to Hyde Park in London, where, which was a, a notorious hangout for homosexuals to meet, you know, where they otherwise couldn't. Um, and I was going to guess you were going to go with the hiding as in the, you know, the homonym for the word. I think that's also layered in there. Right. But but specifically mm-hmm. because just at the same just before he published this, there was a, a very famous scandal about these these, um, I think, uh, minor nobility who had gone into Hyde Park and met these women and, and had taken them back to their to some hotel. And uh, and then it was discovered that these were not women at all, but men, you know, they were actors who who uh, who actually played women in the theater. Um, and and this was their side gig. Their side hustle was that they were male prostitutes, right? Mm. So, you know, I, I think that we can read that story in multiple ways, right? He's obviously they're using monstrosity to talk about these issues that in Victorian London you cannot talk about openly, right? But at the same time, there's a certain sympathy for the... Um, for the closet homosexual in this case, because look at the lengths that he goes to, to try to destroy that part of himself and winding up only making it uh, more uh, uh, prominent. Sorry, I was monologuing. No, that's fine. That's I enjoyed the analysis. Yeah, very so much so. I, I'm like, wow, just oh, keep going. That yeah. was really interesting. But I, I realize that there are things that we don't all know in our archive of knowledge. But is Willow and Tara the best example of a happy relationship we have um, between two characters of the same gender? Can I add to your original question of define love, define monsters to define happy? <laughs> there. Well, so, yeah. Well, because here's, here's the one. Here's the one that I point to, um, and I think it's the most interesting um, as far as 
as far as queer love stories go, I would point uh, in popular culture, uh, television, film, the recent super or the current, I should say, Supergirl series on on CW. They um, had a they second season, I believe. Um, Supergirl's sister, Alex, comes out as a lesbian and soon after starts a relationship with um, um Maggie, Maggie Sawyer, yeah, with Maggie Sawyer, uh, character from the comic and the way that story ends is they break up because they can't decide whether they want to have kids or not. One wants kids and one doesn't, and that's just the thing that people break up relationships over sometimes, and that's just how it ends. They're happy until that moment, but they can't get past that, and I think that's a... I mean, if you're going to have an ongoing serial, you sort of lose something once the characters have a happily ever after. There's got to, you know, so... If you're, I disagree if you're, with that. Oh, right. I, no, I actually, I actually do a lot, but I think it's a different show because I, my, one of my problems, as Wayne knows, um, starting, and you'll know this too, because I hate a brand new day in Spider Man because I liked Mary Jane and Peter being married. I thought that was a good way to continue the story. But on a show like Supergirl, on a CW. Uh, on a CW teen drama superhero show where their entire premise is going to be, we're just going, and, and maybe it shouldn't be oh this, but right now the premise of that show is the love lives of, of superheroes and they're just breaking up constantly sooner or later in order to give her more romantic drama to deal with. They had to end that relationship. And so okay, I think and, and, and I just nobody died. <laughs> I just, okay. I, I just, I burst out because I just thought of one. Okay. Yes. So I was thinking about, <laughs> you guys were talking about TV, which is not a, a medium that I spend a lot of time um, studying, unfortunately. Um, but I was thinking about, I was reading about Rebecca Sugar's work on Steven Universe. And I was thinking, okay, well, are they monsters? The gem creatures, are they monsters? But then I realized there is a long, complicated homosexual relationship between a sort of a non-monster and a monster that ends up just fine in Rebecca Sugar's uh, uh, storytelling. And that is the one between Princess Bubblegum and Marceline, the vampire queen. They end with a, they end with a, a loving kiss at the, at the, in the, in the finale. Uh, and uh, it's, it's just great. <laughs> so happily ever after. Well, um, I think, yeah, I think it's implied happily ever after. Yeah. Because it ends with them getting together and being happy, right? So yeah, that's that's in Adventure Time. Adventure Time, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It was in the season finale, and I think I'm the only person. The series finale. I think I'm the only person who watched that. <laughs> it's a very popular show. I'm just yeah. I just never watched yeah. it, so I can't. Yeah, I, say. I'm I'm aware of it through the the comics adaptations and, and ongoing series. I want to return to Hannah though. Did you have others that you were thinking of, or you know? Obviously, we have a sort of happy ending on Twilight, which we don't need to talk about anymore. Thank God. Because let's just mm-hmm. pretend it was canceled. Um, <laughs> it was canceled. In I mean, we, we talked about it, it should have been canceled. Everywhere, but I, as I said last time we talked about it, it seems kids don't care anymore. So good on you, next generation. Mm. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, Shape of Water, our happy endings. I have warm. Bodies I, I, has a happy ending. Warm bodies. That's yeah, a really I, good I one. Think, yeah. Yeah. But he's turning human. Right. Yeah. I, I have one. He's turning human, though. The love of a good woman has rescued him from his monstrosity. And that that is something. That's the same Beauty and the Beast trope, only reversed. Yeah. yeah. And there's a. Uh, I, yeah. What about what about Blade Runner? Right. At the end of Blade Runner, the original, Deckard runs off with um, uh, Sean Young, Rachel, Rachel. And she's a monster. She's mm-hmm. definitely a monster. Yeah. 
She's in, more, he's also a monster, in, but she's in comics in comics. In, yeah, in a comics thing at Camelot three thousand, there's the retelling of the Tristan is old story with a mm-hmm. lesbian couple, a magically transgendered Tristan, and unlike every other Tristan in his old story ever. It ends up with a really happy ending. You know, they they have a successful relationship. It, they end up being mm-hmm. very happy. So, which really goes to prove something that I have uh, been saying for a long time, which is Wayne Wise loves Camelot three thousand. <laughs> I, I have my issues with it. It, it. it doesn't hold up as well as, as some other things. Uh, I the hair is great. It, Their hair is it's terrific. A, it's a it's, it's a long time favorite for for various reasons, but I, I have my issues with it. But. But that, that is, that's a case where, you know, it's, that was the first lesbian kiss in comics. Um, but they're not monsters though, Wayne. Try and focus. Please. No, no. Please focus. No. Please. Well, well, we, were, well we, we were talking, are Marceline <laughs> and Princess Bubblegum monsters? Princess Bubblegum is a golem and Marceline is okay. a vampire. Okay. Yeah, Marceline's a vampire. I knew that. And Princess Bubblegum um, is a golem made out of uh, bubblegum. Mm-hmm. They'd have candy. Well, it, it, but, but if we're using the metaphor of, of homosexuality or transgendered as metaphors for monsters or monsters as metaphors for that, then then this fits in. Well, that's true. True Blood has monsters. happy endings for several of the characters. Yeah. I'm trying to think, do any of the queer characters end up with a happy ending in True Blood? Uh, I don't remember if Lafayette ends up with his boyfriend or not. He has a boyfriend who's a vampire towards the end, but I don't remember how it ends for him. I'm trying to think yeah. if there are any. Oh, yes, there is one. Oh, my God. There was one Frankenstein adaptation that brought love, the love of the creator for the created back into the, the, the play, because this is the way that you can, that the, that the monster's monstrosity can be alleviated. Right. And that is, uh, Mel Brooks's young Frankenstein. And yes. And at the end of that, uh, the, the monster and his creator both trade off, uh, a little of the humanness and a little of the monstrosity. And so that they, they both benefit from that, um, the human becoming more monstrous and the monster becoming more human. And they both wind up in happy relationships with, with wonderful, ah, powerful sweet women. mystery of life. Oh, sweet mystery of life. At last life Gene, Gene Wilder died the year before my monster's book came out or the year that I was finishing it. And I dedicated the book to him, um, for bringing a Frankenstein full circle. So go back to Hannah's original questions. And so we've talked about, we've talked a lot about monstrosity as a metaphor and who is the monster and everything. But, um, so what about, we, we didn't answer the, the love question of what counts as a monstrous love story. We, and we've sort of jumped around a bunch of them, but do, are, are we more interested in stories where they both, uh, where they both become monsters? Are they, they're both monsters or there's one of each? Because if we're, if we're talking about the metaphor thing, you mentioned, we mentioned warm bodies briefly and it has the beauty and the beast problem, which is, yeah, sure. They they end up together, but only in that there's a sameness. You know, her love is curing him, and she's and he's becoming normal. It's implied by the end of the by the end of the but film. That's the Beauty and the Beast trope. Is there ever a point? Right, right, and that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is there ever a point where you can where you can do like so? Uh, Kong and uh, Kong cannot be in love with what's Faye Ray's character's name. Uh, Oh. <laughs> That's just, see, no one ever knows. You know, I no could have told you had you um, not called her favorite um, the entire time. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, th- but he has to die. Is there ever a point where the monster just ends up with the human? Just recently, Ben, ben Grimm. Ben Grimm just married Alicia Masters. Like and, a month com- and a half ago. Comics are always in more comics. progressive than everything well, else. Yeah. 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 King Kong and Darrow. That's Favorite's character. Okay. Yes. Anyway, I wonder if. 
Her name mm-hmm. changes over time. Oh, so Anne Darrow. What was Naomi Watts's name? In, Anne Darrow. Uh, that, that, oh, okay, good, good. Okay. That, yeah, that, 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 it's the same. Like a lot of the right. characters are the same um, in those two adaptations. So there are some, there okay. are several stories in which uh, the, um, the human makes a choice to become monstrous in order to be with the one that, that shape of, water. Shape of sure. water is one. Although I think she was always monstrous, right? Cause but, she always had those gills and, and he was. So but if we're going right, right, to right. talk about shape of water real quick. If she's always monstrous <laughs> or she becomes a monster, what does that say about how the film handles disability? Because there's an article uh, that um, is called, I belong where the people are just building the shape of water that critiques the film for how it equates mm-hmm. disability with monstrosity. Hey, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've done yeah. a lot of work in this area and um, I haven't read the article and I feel like I should. Thinking about it in terms of a happy romantic story and the difference between this and something like Beauty and the Beast is that it's in this case, the woman who quote unquote becomes monsterized. And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the you know fact that she always kind of was monsterized with the gill like things on the side of her neck. Uh, but also this like kind of becomes seen as part of her disability. So what, you know, are the politics of a film when you monsterize someone who is a person with disability? Uh, there, a article um, has a critique of this um, and, you know, says that, uh, you know, there, there's a romance between a monster and a quote, a freak. Um, and, uh, you know, she, you know, why can't she just be with someone who is human? Uh, she's seen as less than a person by the film itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, absolutely. Yes. Uh, and I had a chance to read, uh, that article. I belong where the people are by Elsa Unison Henry, I think is how the parents, um, her name, um, their name, uh, because we had some technical difficulties and I was able to read the article while we were having technical difficulties. <laughs> um, but I, I do think, uh, before I, I dive into Peeking that, behind the curtain. Exactly. <laughs> I do want to say that there are several, um, subversive, if you will, monster stories, um, in theater and film where the, um, the happy ending occurs when the, um, when the human actually makes a conscious choice to become more monstrous. And this happens at the end of, um, uh, that wonderful comedy. Um, lo- uh, was it uh, love at first bite? Um, oh God. <laughs> yeah. Where <laughs> she decides curious. that she, no, not that one. Um, uh, Oh geez. What's no, that's once been love at first bite is, um, Oh, uh, it's, uh, God, is that great? Um, no, no, no. It's, oh, no, I can't remember. I don't remember which one's which anymore. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a vampire spoof starring George Hamilton, George Hamilton. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And Susan St. James and Richard Benjamin is in it. And most um, tan vampire ever. That's right. He was the most tan <laughs> vampire ever. And she decides ultimately that she'd rather be a vampire with him than, uh, than continue dating her, um, her, uh, uptight therapist boyfriend. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and then there's a, there was also an adaptation of the, um, the Angela Carter book, uh, 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 about werewolves. Um, uh, come on, you guys, come on, nerds. Help me out here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not the, uh, it, mm. it's the one about werewolves. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. Oh God, I'll look it Keep up. Going. Um, I'll, yeah, I, yeah, I'll yeah. Google yeah. it. <laughs> well, and I was thinking too, um, Shrek. Oh, yeah. oh yes. I, I've taught yeah, it and, and Shrek, I just couldn't remember. Yeah. Yeah. 
Shrek is another good one. Company of Wolves, where uh, where Little Red Riding, it's a Little Red Riding Hood story, and she meets mm-hmm. the huntsman in the woods, who is clearly, obviously, a werewolf, and uh, and at the end, he he wolfs out on her uh, when he spurns her, when she spurns him sexually, and mm-hmm. rather than rather than her being eaten and devoured by him, she basically just kills him, but um, or she defeats him anyway, and um, and then she makes a conscious choice that she would rather be a werewolf. And spend the rest of her life with this guy than with the oafish village boys that are her other option, right? And so she she makes that choice. But I think so. In the case of Shape of Water, though, and in the case of um, Elsa Sunis and Henry's critique, um, I'm very sensitive to this critique about the way that monsters are often shown with disabilities, scars or or blindness or um, some sort of um, uh, uh, posture problem or they're missing a hand or something as a way of uh, manifesting their inner monstrosity. Right. And that is a, that is definitely a harmful way of, of uh, depicting disabled people, right? It doesn't help with issues of representation surrounding disabled people. However, I think in this particular case, that is very, I think that Guillermo del Toro is quite aware of this, of this um, problem. And I think he subverts it in interesting ways because at the beginning of the story, we, we, the narrator tells us that this is the story of a monster who nearly, uh, ruined the lives of all these people. And in the end, of course, maybe this part isn't that, uh, surprising, but it's Michael Shannon's character who turns out to be the monster, right? And he is white and male and in a position of power and he is heterosexual. Um, and those qualities, first of all, um, make him diametrically opposed to almost everybody else in the film right? Who are marginalized in one or more of those categories. And second of all, um, place within him, all the seeds that he needs to be really monstrous. Right. And one of the things that we see about him is that he has a fetish for, uh, for, for disability. He has a sexual fetish and he tries to, to make his wife force his wife to be silent when they're having sex. And so he's attracted to her disability. He fetishizes her disability, but, um, there was a Battlestar Galactica episode, uh, the new one, where uh, Richard Hatch playing, um, I forget, he's not playing Apollo, but he's talking to the new Apollo. Um, and he says, he says, Apollo was a god of healing, but he was also a god of disease. Now, how could he do that? Right. And Apollo had these arrows where he could shoot a healing arrow or a plague arrow. Right. How could Apollo embody those oppositional things? And the answer is he's a god. He transcends mortal definitions, right? And I think that the difference between a monster and a superhero or a monster and a god is that both of these types of characters embody contradictions, right? They they exist on the borderline between things that in the normal world are not possible to coexist. Human and beast, human and god, aliveness and deadness, <laughs> life and death. Um, they're liminal figures. They're, they're liminal. They always have to be liminal. Um, but sometimes you embody this liminality harmoniously and sometimes disharmoniously, you know, like what's the difference between uh, a vampire and Jesus, right? Um, they both rise from the grave. They both have, have to, you know, sustain themselves through blood, blah, blah, blah. Um, one of them embodies it in a sacred way that transcends. Another one embodies it in a horrifying way that subverts, right? And the last line of the movie that Michael Shannon says to, the fish monster is, oh, and it's this anagnoresis, this moment of discovery where he says, oh, you're not a monster. You're a God. 
And that's when he realizes, right? For me, this is so consistent with my own ideas about this kind of culture. He recognizes that there's nothing disharmonious about the way that the fish creature embodies his being. In fact, he's transcendent. And by bringing uh, the main character, um, Elisa, uh, into that world, he actually brings her into a sort of um, a more mature version of what she already was, because we know she already has gills. Uh, in some manifestation, those scars on her throat, which prevent her from talking. And so her, her muteness is not actually a disability, but a sign of her eminence. So it becomes a peculiarity that becomes eminence. And this refers to, uh, I'm, I'm referring consciously now to a book called uh, Extraordinary Bodies, uh, written by Rosemary Garland Thompson. It was published in 1996, the same year that uh, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen wrote Monster Theory. So um, I'm not trying to take away anything from this idea that that representing people with disabilities in relation to monstrosity is highly problematic. And that I think that this particular film can definitely, you know, is vulnerable to some critique along those grounds. However, I also think that there's this notion there that that her disability is a sign of a of a greatness in her that she is on a quest to realize and ultimately, she's the one that has to realize that the, the monster doesn't do it for her. The, the 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 fish monster does not do it for her. She does it for herself. And to me, this is also why they have such a big deal with eggs, right? <laughs> because you know, it's a you know, it's a thing. He, she gives him eggs, and that's like it's a sexual metaphor, but it's also this. It's also a, a metaphor for um, the potentiality that she has within her to become something greater than she is. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that that what I just said is the absolute end all be all of that critique. I think that there's a lot of conversation to be had there, but, but I, I want to at least have the possibility there that disability can be represented in culture in a way that makes it a, a kind of eminence or transcendence. And I think that's actually pretty cool when that happens. So we've resolved nothing. <laughs> we've resolved nothing. Yeah, wait, I want you to that. tell me what love is. What is love? <laughs> Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Love is monstrous. I, I think that's okay. what we've come up to. I, I think that we've uh, all agreed that the mummy is the greatest love story of all time. <laughs> In general, it's not which, as good as Richard Mummy, but but you know. <laughs> if looks could go through computer screens and kill. <laughs> hey, I'm with you on the uh, Brendan Fraser. I, I I could watch that movie over and over and over and over again. It's I'm on not Netflix. Sure I'm going to go so far as to say it's the greatest love story, but I'm going to go with I can watch it again and again and again. <laughs> I mean, if you watch the original, the original uh, Hammer. M mummy um with uh, christopher lee is it um yeah christopher lee uh 1959 um it's re it is really a, a really powerful love story where you know christopher lee is this person who whose love has caused him to uh to transcend thousands and thousands of years and come back to save his uh his lover the reincarnated princess. It, it actually is quite a lovely love story. So there we go. So, so you have a choice, <laughs> but Han Hannah says that like for this Valentine's day, everyone listening at home, you should all 
watch Brendan Fraser and the Mummy. There I are guess? much better ways. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, there, actually, no, not better ways. There, there's no better way. Except maybe going to see Serenity, the greatest film of all time. Uh, there are much worse ways to spend Valentine's Day. I mean, I mean, Tinder, you know. Now I'm wondering if there's a future episode of Monsters on Tender, but I don't know that we have that narrative yet. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to thank both of our guests for being here. Mike, Heather, thanks for coming on once again. As always, you're always welcome here. Oh, thank you. It's so much fun. This is the best uh, (laughs) show on the podternet. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Well, if you also, listener at home, if you think this is the best show on the Podternet, we would appreciate it if you left us a five-star review on iTunes. That helps other people find the show through magic iTunes algorithms that no one understands. Uh, you, um, let's uh, have people plug stuff before I give the rest of the end of the spiel. <laughs> Mike, where can people find you if they want to learn more? Um, you, you know, I don't twit, uh, although I might, I might start. <laughs> so if you want to learn more about me, you will have to go to the Department of Theater Arts, uh, at University of California, Santa Cruz webpage. Um, and uh, you can find out a little bit more about my work there, um, or you could look me up on. Or they can buy your book. Oh yeah, so I have this book. Well, like, yeah, well, I have a book. <laughs> if you're interested in, if you think that I have anything interesting to say, uh, you can you can buy my book, uh, which comes out, which is out from Rutledge, and it's called "The Monster in Theater History: This Thing of Darkness." And that is linked in the show notes. And Heather. Uh, You also can read more about what I think about monsters, particularly monster hunters in the monster and modern popular (laughs) culture. Um, Also, I've I've got some assorted other stuff out there. You could probably Google it or use your uh, library of choice. (laughs) library of choice hannah okay yes uh if you want to hear more about my thoughts perhaps about the mummy perhaps not perhaps about serenity uh you can follow me on twitter (laughs) at hannah lee rogers um where i say things (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about more about Serenity next week. On, well, I, no, next week you'll have Lego movie to talk about. My love is pure. Yeah, you, you, you can follow me at, at Wayne underscore wise.com where I don't say anything. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Guess I don't have to ask you. <laughs> that's the, that's the best part of Wayne's Twitter. Yeah. you can follow me on twitter at chris maverick you can follow the 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 show on twitter at vox popcast you can follow my website at www.chrismaverick.com and the shows at www.voxpopcast.com where you'll find out about our next topic and our next show and you can subscribe to the show which will take you to a link to itunes or spotify or stitcher or wherever else you get podcasts from I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic monstrous theme song that is playing us out this week as every week and building ever so more epically. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Once again, thanks to our guests, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Look at her. I would die for her. I would kill for her. Either way, what bliss? 
unhappy, darling? Oh, yes. Yes, completely. Gomez. Son, il me perce comme un poignard. Oh, Tish. That's French. Oui. Gomez. Querida. Last night you were unhinged. You were like some desperate howling demon. You frightened me. Do it again. 